By now, you might have noticed we're not spending much, if any, time trying to understand media technologies in isolation. Instead, we have been and will keep putting media technologies into the settings on which they depend as well as help shape. One prominent academic concept for scholars seeking to understand media technologies in this way is domestication. This refers to how media technologies and really technologies in general become more and more adapted to fit into everyday life. Sure, when media technologies are new, they tend to be seen as disruptive, even threatening. But in time, they often become just another appliance of our everyday existence. Something utterly unremarkable, ordinary, even boring. Media Technology and Culture is a podcast series by me, Scott Rogers. In this series, we'll be taking a thematic look at media, understood as technologies, We explore the histories of media, as well as more recent developments, and not always necessarily in a linear progression. Some of you listeners will be students in my module, Media Technology and Culture, in which we'll discuss and work on some of these themes in more detail. This is the second edition of the series, which includes some new elements added to the episode in autumn 2021. In this episode, the third in our series, we focus on domesticated technologies. Our aim is not just to introduce the notion of domestication in media research, it's also to get across this key idea. The life of media technologies is defined by users more than inventors. Yet media technologies are most useful when they recede from users' view, when they become invisible. Let's start by defining what domestication might mean in relation to media. The concept of domestication refers to how media technologies, and even technologies in general, eventually become adapted by users to fit into their routines and environments. New media technologies are often, initially, disruptive. If you are old enough, you might recall all the issues of etiquette surrounding the early uses of mobile phones. But eventually, they became rendered into a mere appliance of our everyday existence. They became invisible in practice. But domestication refers not only to how users incorporate technologies into their everyday lives, it is also a way of conceptualizing how subsequent designs of the technology or medium are driven by knowledge of these user-led practices. For example, innovative teenage practices in texting informed how mobile phone designers developed now-obsolete predictive texting technologies such as T9. One of the main ideas put forward by theories of domestication, that media eventually become invisible, bears a striking resemblance to a famous, if somewhat cliché, philosophical example used by Martin Heidegger, the hammer. Heidegger observed that, when one uses a hammer, they direct their attention not to the hammer itself, but to the task that they are undertaking. For example, building a cabinet or mending a roof. Our attention is drawn to the hammer itself only when it fails. The broken hammer can then become our focus, but only because it is not functioning. In the same way, one might incorporate a smartwatch into their daily routines so seamlessly that they never even think about it, at least not until its battery unexpectedly runs out. The resemblance of domestication theory to the philosophical questions asked by Heidegger and others is not accidental. They share the same basic phenomenological questions that focus on the experience of things in particular situations. The media scholar Roger Silverstone drew on these kinds of phenomenological perspectives in his influential writing on domestication. But his work, especially on television, 
also connected to questions around identity, as well as geography, the discipline in which he had his first degree. For Silverstone, domestication processes describe the complex ways in which media users and more generally social groups bring and adapt technological artifacts into their local situations. In his 1994 book, Television and Everyday Life, he outlines four main dynamics through which this unfolds, appropriation, objectification, incorporation, and conversion. Appropriation is the process in which a media technology is initially sold or acquired by a user. Years later, in 2006, just before he died unexpectedly at 61, Silverstone suggested that commodification was a more accurate framing for this dynamic. And this is because, quote, machines and services do not come to the household naked. They are packaged, certainly, but they are also packaged by the erstwhile purchaser and user with dreams and fantasies, hopes and anxieties, the imaginary of the modern consumer society, end quote. This means the appropriation or commodification of technologies may also refer to the work of, for example, designers or market researchers. Objectification is about the positioning of a media technology within a particular spatial environment, such as a household, and also how that positioning may restructure the spatial environment itself. For example, the ways in which televisions tend to deeply implicate the placement of furniture in a room. Incorporation is about how technologies get woven into everyday routines. This means paying special attention to temporal questions, Questions around things like, when does a technology come into use? Who uses it? And for what? But also, like objectification did for space, it alerts us to the ways in which the temporal patterns of everyday life might get substantially reorganized around a particular technology. And, finally, conversion refers to how users mobilize or problematize media technologies to make sense of, express, or display who they are or who they want to be. Think about the smartphone you probably have. You might present and display this object in specific ways for others to see. You may have pride in your chosen model. You might develop certain skills or knowledges about how to best use it. But despite owning a smartphone, you may instead actively resist or refuse doing some or all of these things. An important idea for domestication theories and research, particularly as inspired by Roger Silverstone, is the double articulation of media technologies. It's the idea that media technologies are simultaneously material and symbolic. The television, for example, is a physical artifact. It's on the console in your lounge, for instance. But it's also a window to knowing a wider world through programs of all kinds. The smartphone in your pocket is an expensive, individual gadget. But at the same time, it's a fairly seamless means of co-presence amongst you and your friends and contacts. Double articulation is about how media technologies mediate between our micro-realities and the macro-scale, between our private domains and a public world. It is, perhaps, what makes technologies specifically mediating technologies. The name domestication implies the domestic sphere or the home environment. That setting has precisely been the focus for a lot of audience research. But we shouldn't necessarily confuse domestication with the home or the family, domestic life, or the private sphere. Writing in 2008 in the journal New Media and Society, Helval and Sletmoss point out the principal meaning of domestication is the process of taming the wild. This should remind us, they argue, that the concept can and should be used to understand how technologies get incorporated into a wide variety of other settings outside the home. And it increasingly has been, for example, to study computers in workplaces, car stereos, or listening to music on the commute.
1877, Thomas Edison began demonstrating his new invention, the phonograph. This was an entirely novel device, allowing for the recording and playing back of dictation. At first, Edison's photograph used cylindrical records made of tinfoil. But the tinfoil was impractical, and there are no surviving tinfoil cylinders that are playable today. At a press conference in London on 14 August 1888, Edison presented his perfected phonograph. This was his final achievement, which used wax cylinders. At his demonstration, he played a recording of The Lost Chord by Arthur Sullivan. You heard it just a moment ago. Played on piano and cornet, it is one of the oldest surviving musical recordings. But, as the media historian Lisa Gittleman describes in her 2006 book Always Already Knew, despite this demonstration, Edison had other ideas. He was convinced that his invention would not be used for music, but rather it would be first and foremost a tool of business communications. If you ever dig into historical archives, one of the most interesting things you might find are advertisements of media technologies in their earliest incarnations. What's so striking is how such advertisements highlight the sheer novelty and tentative qualities of the media at hand. Gittleman shows how Edison's early phonograph and the gramophones that followed were routinely anthropomorphized. They were made to be like a person. Edison's greatest invention, the speaking phonograph, talking machine, the tocophone. They could ask you about your health, and seeing as they were intended as business technologies, they could be your stenographer. Dig a little deeper into the archives, not necessarily physical archives, even just searching online, and you'll find more surprising, unrealized lives of the photograph. A collapsible mobile version carried like a vanity case, or a special attachment through which you could use your phonograph like an alarm clock. These show how media technologies go through all kinds of false starts, failures, experiments, and zany ideas. Edison may have seen his phonograph as a tool for business communications, but things unfolded differently. By the beginning of the 20th century, phonographs had become read-only devices dedicated to amusement. An instrument of leisure, not business. At first, the phonograph was a public amusement, similar to early cinema. You could listen to recordings through the use of tubes, similar to headphones, for the price of a nickel. This orientation to leisure laid the groundwork for the phonograph to become what Gittelin describes as, quote, the first non-print mass medium, end quote. And eventually, a domesticated technology in the home. Phonographs were refined into home decor or furniture, given a mahogany finish, for example, so that they could comfortably occupy a place in the home. Recorded sound changes too. As time goes on, it aspires less and less to be a transparent window to some prior live music event. Instead, new recordings are composed, shortened to fit into home rhythms, acoustically modified for home play. So the recordings produced by his master's voice, HMV, did not literally bring the opera to your home as their advertisements claimed. The mechanical reproduction of sound gave special attention to its new contexts. Contexts in which, Gittleman says, could then be infused with, quote, indeterminate evocations of taste hierarchies, social superiority, mastery, and seduction. Gittleman self-consciously uses the generic term new media users throughout her consideration of the phonograph. For her, the technology is an object lesson for how we should think about all new media, not just as individual artifacts, but broader cultural technologies, and not just as the products of inventors, but products of users. Bringing users more fully into media history of the phonograph also means bringing the agency of women more fully into view. Female homemakers effectively made the phonograph into a remarkable new form of music media, more than any amount of business models, corporate strategies, or design interventions ever could. 
It's also not enough to simply account for such media users using a term like consumer, says Gittleman. Use is a form of production too. For this reason, Gittleman deliberately uses the more neutral term, define. Users play an active role in defining what's new in new media. You're hearing a recording of the song Ben Bolt. Alongside other renditions, including live ones, recordings like this one were circulated widely and often listened to repeatedly in the late 19th century. The song had been sung by the central character of George de Maurier's novel Trilby, which had been serialized around the same time in Harper's Magazine. Gittleman sees this as a fascinating case for many reasons, but one is that it highlights a distinction and a relationship she wants to discuss between extensive and intensive qualities of media, and mass culture more generally. Extensive qualities of mass culture involve the consumption of large volumes of media material, moving quickly from one text to another. Examples might include channel surfing, or today descending into a YouTube vortex, or reading Pulp Fiction, or of course, newspapers. Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish and chips wrapper. Intensive qualities of mass culture involve returning to media material repeatedly, very often with increasing appreciation and commitment. Intensity varies. Gittleman suggests we think about the wide-ranging and idiosyncratic intensities surrounding vinyl records today. Avid collectors, audiophiles, or DJs. Even though phonograph recordings subtracted the immersive experience of a live performance from sound, they added something along the way. Alexander Wahelia, in his 2005 book, Phonographies, Grooves in Afrosonic Modernity, argues that it is better to think about how phonographs displaced the materiality of sonic experience, quote, onto the recording apparatus itself and the practices surrounding it, end quote. By making a hard split between sound and its source, the phonograph opened up entirely new ways to engage with and reproduce sound. This included how music could be listened to or made audible, but it also meant new ways of making music through mixing, remixing, sampling, or dubbing. As Wahelia argues, the emergence of recorded sound, starting with the phonograph, should be seen as in an irreducible and complex relationship with modern black culture. Each year losing... The domestication of early radio has both parallels with and differences from that of the phonograph. Like the phonograph, it is a medium of sound, including recorded sound, within the home environment. It is also a way in which other forms of performance, for example live performance, have been remediated into a new setting. But to understand the significance of early radio, we also need to take into account its status as arguably the first mass medium of broadcasting, via the electromagnetic spectrum, and the first medium for the communication of live sound transmissions. Sean Moore's 2000 book, Media and Everyday Life in Modern Society, provides a compelling account of early radio's domestication in the 1920s and 30s. 
What's refreshing about Moore's analysis, still today, two decades onwards, is that it draws not on public or official accounts of early radio, but on oral history interviews of elderly people visiting day clubs in the north of England. Their stories illustrate how the technology of early radio provoked all kinds of tensions and transformations in everyday social practice. Moore's account of early radio is in many ways a specifically phenomenological reading of media domestication. Here we can draw a dotted line back to the example of Heidegger's hammer. Moore's analysis focuses on the ways in which media become taken for granted or largely withdrawn from our consciousness. This is to say that, on some elementary level, media can become like household appliances. The point is, we don't tend to objectify an appliance unless they are faulty in some way. As objects, they largely recede into the background while we go about ironing clothes, toasting bread, watching television, or listening to a podcast. Domestication, Morris notes, involves an art of forgetting. Most of us will be aware of the relatively seamless place radio would eventually come to occupy in people's everyday lives. But as Morris points out, it didn't start out that way. The earliest radio sets were obtrusive and even divisive objects. They were often constructed DIY as part of a kit. Time and commitment was needed to obtain a reasonable reception. The listener, typically male, needed to use headphones. And since early sets were hulking mechanical devices whose batteries could leak corrosive acid, the radio was often brought out, kind of like a board game, a puzzle, or a deck of cards, rather than given a permanent place in the home. Like the telegraph and telephone, a mass market for radio developed slowly. But this changed in the early 1930s with the introduction of relatively cheap radio sets. These featured a small loudspeaker and used mains electricity, They were aesthetically pleasing, designed as a piece of furniture. Gone was the boffin struggling to tune the set. Now all family members could relax and enjoy radio. They could finally ignore the radio as device and focus on listening to radio as programs. Thanks to radio, British dance bands have been carried into every home throughout the British Isles. Let's take a peep into the BBC studios to hear Lou Stone's broadcasting band. General's office Busby, she said it's private Busby when the guardsmen started crooning on parade. It may seem hard to imagine, but it took time for radio to develop consistent scheduling of programs. Through a series of recursive processes, broadcasters fine-tuned schedules based on the imagined or known routines of audience members. Only then could they begin to address their audience in corresponding ways. During the day, for example, programmers sought to be a companion to the housewife. Perhaps a program, for example, about fruit and vegetables meant to inform weekly grocery shopping. Then, a transition to different programs during the family meal, and then for washing up, and so on. If you are a listener today, the daily rhythms of programming may seem like an indelible part of the medium. But the public sphere needed to be programmed into the private. The relatively slow development of programming brings us back to Gittleman's argument that media are substantially defined by their users. Program makers reacted to how radio became adapted and adopted in audiences' everyday lives. 
As Stuart Hall noted in his famous essay on encoding and decoding, the moment of television production and media production more generally is not in a position that is above or before audiences. Media producers don't impose meanings or affects in a one-way direction. Quoting Philip Elliott, Hollett says, the audience is both the source and the receiver of the television message. In his 1996 book, Radio, Television, and Modern Life, Patty Scannell argues that the interaction of radio producers and audiences can be found in the very voice of radio presenters. Challenging Marxist and political economy approaches that emphasize the power of the media, Scannell argued for more attention to the experiential structure found in the engagements between broadcasters and their viewers or listeners. If you look closely, Scannell said, you can observe a communicative intent of broadcasters, actively trying to attune to a world experientially shared with the audience. Suggesting users substantially define media need not be seen as a denial of media power. Moore's notes that an interpretation drawing on the work of Michel Foucault might consider the arrival of radio to instead show power being reconfigured. For Foucault, power is not only found at the level of the state, imposed hierarchically or top-down, it is also expressed through institutions like schools, hospitals, psychiatric establishments, and perhaps broadcasters. These institutions largely exert their power through bodies of knowledge, knowledge that might even be positively, willfully, or naturally internalized by individuals or groups to guide their own behavior. This is, for Foucault, what is the most effective form of power. Power from within, when individuals govern themselves. So for more, the explosion of discourse through radio programming, directed at women around managing domestic life, might be seen as a government through the family, a form of power, quote, exercised from within that replaced a straightforward government of families from above, with the mother being singled out as the main point of support in efforts to reform the household group. She could be understood as the state's delegate, responsible for the physical and moral welfare of her husband and children, end quote. The advantage of the domestication approach to studying media is that it is all about paying very close attention to how media are used and located within the specific moments and places of everyday life. It studies media through detailed case studies and a richly descriptive approach. It shows in depth how situated technological artifacts intersect with cultural values and norms. But is this, for lack of a better term, an analog approach to media? Which is to say, might it miss certain experiential dimensions of digital or network media? How might theories of domestication work when we are trying to understand the arrival of the so-called smart home, in which one's entire living space is strewn with interconnected digital technologies? In their study of smart speaker technologies, Browse and Blank, writing in 2020 in the journal Information Communication and Society, affirm both the value and the limits of a domestication approach. Since, methodologically, the approach provides such a strong orientation to user practices, it allows them to closely study the dispersed ways in which speaker assistants have been woven into household environments, through what they call use genres. And yet, domestication theory is less equipped to study media technologies like these, which are always on, spread ubiquitously around a home, interconnected and controlled via related devices such as smartphones. These conditions suggest smart speakers should be partly understood for their backstage operations, partially hidden from users. Roger Silverstone's four dynamics mentioned earlier, commodification, objectification, incorporation, and conversion, seem to emphasize how fairly discrete media objects work in everyday settings. Browse and Blank propose a fifth dynamic, 
externalization, where the interlinking of network devices is understood as part of their domestication. The growing incursion of algorithms, and particularly recommendation systems into everyday uses of media, presents another challenge to domestication theories. This is the argument of Siles and co-authors writing in 2019 in the journal Communication, Culture, and Critique. They point out that if, as Netflix estimates, three-quarters of its users watch programs based on its recommendations, focusing on user practices alone might be a blind spot. Now, research to date on algorithms has, if anything, understudied user practices. As Siles and his co-authors say, quote, We know that certain cultural concepts are inscribed in algorithms and that companies use their opacity to establish commercial objectives. However, we understand less well how users incorporate them or not into practices as audiences and what the consequences of those interactions are, end quote. Based on a study of Netflix viewers in Costa Rica, Siles and his co-authors suggest we might try to think through processes of mutual domestication. This suggests a kind of parallel process in which programs via a platform like Netflix are incorporated by users into their daily life, but also how via its recommendation system, the platform itself works to colonize these same users. It frames them as ideal audiences or consumers. Now, once again, with all this talk of networks, ubiquity, and algorithms, we're previewing some of the topics that we're going to return to in episodes to come. So until then, I'm Scott Rogers, and you've been listening to Media, Technology, and Culture.